If you have your Bibles, can you hear me now? Is that good? Sounds good to me. You may want to join us as we look again at Acts chapter 8. As you know, this is our sermon series, I'm Not Ashamed, and I'd like for us to begin by reading the entire passage. It's a narrative, uh, so it's sometimes challenging for us to get the whole picture without reading this entire passage. Acts chapter 8, and this afternoon we are going to be looking at I hit it twice, an immediate obedience. And my heart, uh, as I prepared this, I was not actually thinking of you. I felt myself the scrutiny of his word. Why is it important that we walk through the book of Acts, the acts of God moving among his people? Because in the book of Acts, we see an opportunity to look into an uncultivated field and realize how the seed of the gospel was sowed in that context. So beginning in Acts chapter 8, our passage of Scripture, verse 26, and I'll read through verse 40. Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go to the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet of Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked him, Do you understand what you're reading? And the man said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life? is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came out up of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's pray together. Father God, we have read your word. Now we invite you by your spirit to plant your word deep into our hearts, so deep in fact that it takes root and finds fruit in our behaviors. We have today in 
intentionally placed herself beneath the authority of your word. So speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this afternoon, just to give you a preview, we are going to be looking at how the gospel is first discovered, how we find gospel opportunity. Second, we'll look at how it's strengthened, how gospel opportunity is strengthened, how it is completed, and then we'll look at just briefly how the gospel becomes contagious. Um, Before we get into this, let me just say something to those of you who are parents uh, of young ones. Shingy, I'm looking at you. There's no cry room here. So even though I'm looking at Shingy, I'm talking to the rest of us. If you have a child without a cry room, you, please don't go outside. Just let that child do what that child needs to. We're family. We'll understand we're in this space for one Sunday, and soon we will be in our own space celebrating God's goodness. So let me just say to young parents, please um, don't be anxious about a child that needs to run about. We're, we're okay with that. Now, um, as we get started, though, how many of you are parents? This is the interactive part. How many of you are parents? Now, you don't need to keep your hand up for the entire thing because um, it's not a trick question, but how many of you are not ashamed? Is this our series, right? Not ashamed? How many of you are not ashamed specifically to say, I'm a counter? Like, like I don't know if this is uh, part of the parenting culture in Singapore. But I experienced it here. Uh, last week, Ollie and I were making a hospital visit. We went our separate ways at a SkyTrain station. And in the station, an Australian mother was negotiating with her son. <laughs> which, which I found a little comical. Uh, b- because she was obviously a counter. For, first, she, she said, Divis, which is why I'm just guessing she was Australian... First, I would say Davis, and secondly, that's actually a surname. You gave your son a surname instead of a first name. Divis, leave your sister alone. Now, I get it because I raised three boys who couldn't leave each other alone, so I I get what was happening. He was tormenting his sister just for his own personal entertainment, Um, but, but the command, leave your sister alone, wasn't enough for him. And so she said again, I want you to behave. And, uh, and apparently that wasn't enough, and so she did it. One. You, you know it goes to three, right? And, and that counting to three is like parent code we think nobody else in our world knows, but it's how we manage our children's behavior in public. Because not even in Singapore do you approve of caning in public. I, I don't think so, right? But my, my father was not a counter because he was an immigrant father. He was not afraid to beat me. <laughs> he, he was definitely not afraid to apply the hand of discipline to my seat of education. And actually, some of you are leaning back really comfortable on the chair back. My brother and I never called that a chair back. It was an armrest because when we were sitting at the dinner table... My father's arms would be on one side of my chair, on, on the other side of my brother's chair. When we were eating in public, same thing. It was his armrest. And, and I remember him saying, shortly after I was straightening my glasses, well, Ann, I can't knock sense into the boy and hitting him in his bum. Meaning he cuffed me, the, 
the back of the head. Now, I know you don't do that because you're not from Scotland. But my father was not a counter. Now, I, I'm saying that I was a, a counter because I was the next generation, but I only counted to one. Because I'm not going to be like this Australian mom who is in absolute public torment. One, two, two and a half. <laughs> right, it never ends unless you're moving at one. So, so I learned my boys responded immediately. By the time I say one, that's already second warning. Leave your brother alone was the first one. One is, I'm getting ready to get up. So I was never really a counter. So today's, here's the big idea. We're, we're, we're counting. God, you know, God is just going to see how quick we are on the uptake. Because I'm pretty sure God's not much of a counter either. The big idea for this afternoon's message is this. Spiritual disobedience is evidence that I have in my life an alternative source of authority. Now, that's why the two-year-old and the three-year-old learns to ask that big question, why? Suddenly they're smart enough to need justification as to why whatever they want to do, whatever they are doing right at that moment is not more important than whatever the parents are saying they should be doing. More than this, though, delayed obedience. And, and we in the church, we've, we've developed cliches that kind of sanctify delayed obedience that, that may, in a way that makes us seem a little more spiritual because we haven't immediately said, yes, we're just praying about it. We should, should really pray about the obvious command of Christ why, why should I do that? That exposes the fact that we've got a bunch of sources of authority in our life. Authorities that we have picked up in our educational system, in our living life, and, and they are fighting for elbow room right now in the table of my heart because God asked me to do things that, that I cannot do without his equipping. And so I need to pray about it. First, then, as we count through this, gospel opportunities are discovered in the middle of immediate obedience. Time is of the essence. Let me just read again verse 26. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, he was in Samaria, north of Jerusalem. And the Lord says to him, Rise, go to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And immediately, he arose and went. Now, even the most casual reading of these verses, you could easily think of at least perhaps three reasons to defer a decision. I mean, the first is, a ministry reason. I mean, these are just blowing up in Samaria. You're, you're seeing things really move. Why would you leave successful ministry where whole villages are coming to Christ? You're, you're baptizing everyone. And, and by the way, 
don't you have a responsibility to raise those disciples? You've already had one famous failure in Simon. You've got to get on that guy and raise him in the deep truths of the faith. Otherwise, he's going to turn into the first heretic. You, You see how sources of authority justify my lack of response. Well, well, that's a good ministry reason to stay, but, but isn't there also a strategic reason? We, we can already see in the very early days of the church that the church went to where the people were. They, they were passionate about sharing the gospel with people. So they went to towns, they went to villages, and later on the Apostle Paul would kind of codify this mission strategy. He would go to the most strategic gateway cities in the first centuries where the nations met for trade. That's specifically, strategically, where the Apostle Paul went. And God spoke through a messenger, through an angel, Philip, go up to this deserted place. It's not a city. It's not a village or a town. It's a wilderness. How do you even justify that aside from the fact that he just had this sense that God had spoken to him? And and then this really pragmatic reason. I feel sorry for the guy, then or now, whose only justification for doing something is I... You know, an angel spoke to me. Right? That, you know that would make you uncomfortable. Angel meaning a messenger. A, a messenger from God spoke to me. Now, I know this is uncomfortable because in 1990, our mission board asked Sherry, where are, are you thinking you are going to go to begin your ministry? We said, we believe God wants us to go to Malacca. And our mission organization, our, our mission leader said to us, so, you heard from God personally? What does God sound like when he speaks? In other words, that's not our strategy. Nobody's going to Malacca. Not even the government is going to the Malacca. The, the highway is going 20 kilometers away from Malacca. Why would you go there? I have no answer except I had this sense that God was directing us there. It didn't feel good. It wasn't affirmed, not even by spiritual leaders. Sometimes when God speaks, you do it because you're committed to immediate obedience, not because some spiritual leader has affirmed it, not because it makes sense, not because it fits your gifting or your talents, but simply because God spoke it. Deacon Philip was immediately obedient. And the result is verses 27 and 28. And there in that desert place, there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet of Isaiah. Now, now listen, besides being African, There's several other fascinating things about this man. First, this was a man with baggage. He had been surgically modified. He had been neutered. Why? Because he was a commoner, a servant of the queen mother. 
And they had to ensure that any common seed would not get mixed with royal blood. Any man who served with the harem or with the queen mother or the princess was neutered. He was a a broken man. No common DNA was at risk of mixing with royal blood. But he was also, secondly, a man with significant authority. He was the basically minister of finance. Now, now, by the way, even though Candace is a real popular Christian name, it is actually a title and not a name. Because in Ethiopia, the king was a god. And gods did not mess their hands with the profane act of governance. So royalty ran through the queen mother. She was the one who, on behalf of her child, ran Ethiopia. It has been translated for us as this title, Candace. This man had authority. He was the nation's treasurer. If you control the money, you've got some significant authority. Now, by by the way, the third thing, he was a Jew. Is that surprising to you? Because he was an Ethiopian, yet he was in Jerusalem doing what? Verse 27, worshiping. He was a Jewish Ethiopian who went to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. This This is something that is not carefully outlined in Scripture, but there is an ancient manuscript called the Glory of Kings, named after Proverbs 25, verse 2, which says, the glory of God is to conceal, but the glory of kings is to search. In this manuscript, the Glory of Kings, it speaks of an ancient Ethiopian queen who went to the city of David to hear of the wisdom of that Jewish king whose name was Solomon, and we know her name as the Queen of Sheba. She came back to Ethiopia with a new faith, and according to tradition, pregnant with Solomon's prince. And for 700 years in the ancient world, Ethiopia was actually a Jewish African nation. He was a Jew. But second, you know, that's just how this deacon, Philip, discovered gospel opportunity, immediately obedient. But second, gospel opportunities are strengthened by a pattern of immediate obedience. It's not enough. Oh, there he is. I'm forgetting to turn uh, the slides. Apologies. There's no projector screen up there. It's strengthened, gospel opportunity is strengthened by a pattern of immediate obedience. This is important to us because I'm guessing almost every one of us here could say, if I asked you, have you been obedient? And you could say yes. But for most of us, obedience is the same as missions. We do it once in a while. Or we did it at least once. We, we repented and turned to him. We were obedient that time. 
And we want it to hold for all eternity. But, but listen, gospel opportunities are strengthened not just by one-time obedience. It, it wasn't just that Philip was there. He went to a desert place because God told him. God said something. God's continually speaking in his word. Verses 29 through 31 says, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him. It's not that convenient. You can't be cool, slow walker. God said, go over and join this chariot. Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? You see, obedience creates this opportunity. A pattern of obedience strengthens the opportunity. Sometimes we want to get credit that we were once obedient. Remember Simon? He was obedient once. And he was baptized. He was obedient twice. But there was no pattern of obedience because Simon had a source of authority that said, Simon, exalt yourself. Use the gifting to promote yourself. I'm not going to stick on this because... The clock here is very visible. A third gospel opportunities are completed by a verbal witness. Verses 32 through 33. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent so he opens not his mouth in his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life was taking a, taken away from the earth? It, it seems very likely to me that this eunuch was doing what I sometimes do. I, I think it's very likely he was reading himself into the scripture. He was finding comfort through the reading of God's word because this was a man who knew injustice. This was a man who had been led to the slaughter whose blood was shed. This was a man who was obligated, obligated to say nothing, to keep silent and to find no justice. This, remember, was a Jew assuming he knew the law of God. Deuteronomy chapter 23 specifically says that no eunuch can be included in the assembly of God. This was a man who, whose family had embraced this faith that specifically informed him that you yourself do not qualify. And so... Verses 34 and 35, the eunuch says to Philip, hopefully, about whom I ask you, does this prophet say this, about himself or someone else? Sorry, you may need to help me. The law forbade him. This, this apparently has lost energy. Verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth. That right there is profound. Then Philip opened his mouth 
and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. I don't know if you're suddenly feeling exposed, but, but this week when I came to this passage, suddenly the Spirit allowed me to remember about 15 years of my Christian life. And I, and I suddenly realized that for myself, when I was presented with gospel opportunity, I lived the good life, the good Christian life as a testimony. When, when I was presented with somebody literally questioning, having spiritual questions, when I had the opportunity to share good news, I determined that I wouldn't offend anybody, that I wouldn't lose any friends. Philip determined, because of a pattern of immediate obedience, that the God of time and space had arranged this time and this space for his gospel. And so starting in this verse, he opened his mouth and told him the good news of Jesus Christ. Do you understand? He was in Isaiah 53, only three chapters away. Isaiah 56, God says this, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who choose the things that please me, I will give in my house, I will give within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. Do you know this is good news for the broken? Do you know this is great news for those who do not qualify? For those who read the law of God and feel guilty? This is why the gospel is needed. Because the law declares guilty. But the gospel declares grace. And GBC, our name declares it that we are space for the broken. We will be the monument that gives them a name, not a name they earned from outside there, not a name that men called them, a name better than sons and daughters, supplied by the blood of Christ. This is the good news. And, and then, next slide, the gospel becomes contagious when people imitate someone who's immediately obedient. So if you're trying to fill in that blank, the gospel becomes contagious by or through imitation. And as they were going along the road, this is verse 36, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. There goes that deacon Philip again. He's not a pastor. Either he just didn't learn his Simon lesson, or this was the New Testament pattern. Baptism, immersion, was the first step of what? Obedience. It was not an act that declared myself qualified. 
It was not a qualifying act to allow me to be accepted into membership. It was that first step of obedience, immediate obedience. Why is that necessary? Because in 11 weeks, this eunuch could learn a lot about how to delay obedience spiritually. How to sanctify delayed obedience. But he learned immediate obedience from a man who was demonstrating a pattern of immediate obedience. Now, wait a minute. I read for you verses 36 and 38. What happened to 37? Because if you're like me and you, you grew up in church, you were kind of reading a different Bible. Because my Bible growing up in church had a verse 37. I'm guessing if you have a new translation, it goes verse 36 and then verse 38. Why? Verse 37, by the way, Philip responds to the eunuch. The eunuch says, what would prevent me from being baptized? And Philip responds immediately and says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And the eunuch replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, kind of giving a confession of faith. Well, what happened? You, you see, the newest translations of the Bible have access to the oldest manuscripts. And none of the oldest manuscripts have that qualifying verse 37. In other words, as the church grew, as more Simons started coming along, the church developed a pattern of requiring something Prove that you're a believer. Say this confession. And some scribe added that verse. Couldn't imagine that the early church would baptize so quickly with no assessment, with no baptismal new membership class, and no learning from the Simon disaster. That verse was not in the original. Immediately, they stopped and went down into the water so that broken Jewish foreigner could immediately identify with Christ so that he could express that desire for immediate obedience. Verse 39 through 40. And when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord Carried Philip away. Ask me how that happened. And I will say, no idea. The eunuch saw him no more and went his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. That means straight north of Gaza. The first town you come to is Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. That means whatever Philip did in Samaria, whatever he was doing in that desert place in Gaza, he did in Azotus, he did in Joppa, he did at Antipatris, modeling this immediate, consistent pattern of obedience this deacon, unschooled by any seminary, unsanctioned 
by the church apostles who remained in Jerusalem, sanctioned though by the Spirit of the Almighty, he did what God had shaped him to do. And what kind of difference did exposure to this kind of deacon, to this kind of disciple, what kind of difference did that make in that eunuch's life? I know that this is challenging. But, but I am the consequence of a church that modeled for me. And we are not far from that church because every single Sunday the Christian life was modeled for me and as far as I could tell it was Christians once a week gather, sit when they're told to sit, stand when they're told to stand and sing the right songs and listen to a man yelling at them. This Ethiopian learned a different kind of ministry and it caused him to see everything about Scripture, everything about the cross differently. If I, for instance, was to take a survey and have a question, why did Jesus die on the cross? I suspect many of us would give an answer something like, so I would not have to. He bore my sins in the cross. He bore the full wrath of the, of the almighty holy God so that I would not have to, which is not totally wrong. It's just not totally right. Yes, he bore my sins on the cross, but the reason Scripture says Jesus went to the cross was not because of Ian, but because of obedience. That's why Philippians said, and so Christ humbled himself by obedience. Even obedience unto death, death on a cross. You see, Jesus modeled obedience so I would know what he meant when he said, so take up your cross and follow me. If, we have made that a cliche, oh, we're not in our own building. We've got to, you know, go to CHS and this week, you know, we're, we're in the cultural center. That's just our cross to bear. Taking up your cross and following Christ is not tolerating some inconvenience. Taking up your cross and following Jesus is learning how to pray, Father, not your will but mine be done. Taking up our cross and following Christ is learning how to model a pattern of obedience. And this is what that eunuch learned from that deacon named Philip. Next slide. You know, African tradition informs us that that eunuch had a name. Next slide. 
According to African tradition, his name was Kinakis. Kinakis was the royal treasurer. He went to Jerusalem on a spiritual pilgrimage. He went to Jerusalem as a Jew wanting to worship in the holy city. And he came back as something different. He came back transformed. And all he would talk about was this good news. And he consistently, both in Ethiopia and in the Sudan, would talk nonstop about this good news for the broken, for the foreigners. And, and consequently, within one generation, Ethiopia became the first Christian nation on earth. It was not Italy. It was Ethiopia. By the third century, 80% of Ethiopians considered themselves Christians. And do you know today, 30 million Ethiopians identify themselves as followers of the living God, Jesus Christ. All of these descendants produced by one man who could not have children. So I wonder, that's the legacy of one man committed to a life of obedience. What will be our legacy? I, I think it's amazing that in, in such a short time through the sacrifice of God's people, we are funding basically a $20 million building. I've never heard of that before. That, that's amazing. But, but is that all we want? You know, when, when we're in eternity, do, do we want people to greet us at God's great gate saying, oh, you're the people who built that building? Singapore, we, we won't be the first Christian nation. But I wonder if we dare dream about being the next. I, I wonder if we dare dream about, practically speaking, what will it look like if we raise a generation of disciples? It's an impossible conversation to have without including obedience in the equation. It, it would impact everything we do. Every meeting we have will be transformed by this conversation. I, I, I want to invite us to bow our heads together. Our worship team is going to come up and prepare to lead us in our last song. But I, I wonder what this means for you. Because honestly, this passage of Scripture wrecked me in my office at 37 Tannery Road. I, I was just... And, and suddenly it, be, it became so not enough for me to come together with strategies and vision plans.
if, if we are not in some way being contagious with obedience, what, what does that even look like? I, I wonder if, like, I'm not, I'm not going to even ask you to raise your hand, so this, this is just a conversation between you and God. I wonder if you would dare ask the Lord, oh God, expose anything in my life, just, just one thing, expose in my life that I have not yet given you my unreserved, undiluted yes to. Just God, expose that to me. God, God by your grace, let me work on that one thing. And then the next thing. And the next thing. Until obedience becomes the primary characteristic of this, your child. Let me, on this afternoon, have this opportunity to reorder the sources of authority in my life. And let it be said of this child that I kept nothing from you. Let it be said that the king of creation never had to count waiting on his people to say, yes, I will trust and I will obey. Father God, I invite you to demonstrate your generosity by allowing your spirit to shed light in me and in my brothers and sisters as we are in your presence and would dare to say to you just one thing, God, expose in my heart that I've kept from you. And I will respond like Philip, like an Ethiopian. Despite my brokenness, despite the fact that there have been some in my world who have told me I don't qualify, help me to trust that you will give me a name better than son or daughter, that you will construct in my heart a memorial that will remind me daily that I am your child and I will take up my cross and I will follow until your name is glorified among the nations. This is our prayer. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to stand as we prepare to sing our hearts out of this building. Let's close our time together.